Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, leadership, mentorship, treatment, and policy. I've said that many times before. We are all current patients, future patients, or previous patients. And as we face the journey of being a patient, there are certain elements that could be very overwhelming on the legal front. Do we tell our employer? Can we take some time off? Are we going to be discriminated against? The What are the rights that we have as patients as we navigate the journey of cancer? I think it is really important to know this because there are many elements that we could face that might actually affect what we are dealing with. Because um, at the end of the day, there are non-medical issues that impact quality of life of patients, and they could take actually um, a significant toll while patients need to focus on their cancer care, on the treatment that they receive in these elements. And to dissect the legal rights of patients, I am honored to host uh, an attorney, an amazing lawyer from the Cancer Legal Resource Center that is based in California, although they have a lot of uh, reach across the country. Shelley Rosenfeld, she is the director of the Disability Rights Legal Center's Cancer Legal Resource Center. And she earned her an LLM at UCLA Law School, a JD at UC Hastings College of the law, a master's degree at Northwestern University, and a BA at UC Berkeley. She is a member of the State Bar of California, the State Bar of New York, and the District of Columbia Bar. What I asked Shelley to, is to help us understand some of the legal rights of patients as they navigate the journey of cancer. I hope you find this episode informative. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends, colleagues, write a brief review anywhere you find this podcast, and you can find it pretty much everywhere you consume podcasts. Don't forget to check out my website, www.shadinabhan.com, and also don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. The book came out on February 28, 2023. I hope you enjoy it because it describes the first three litigation trials against Monsanto and their herbicide product Roundup that has been linked to the development of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a form of cancer. Without further ado, Shelley Rosenfeld on Healthcare Unfiltered. Shelly, welcome to the show. I should probably call you Counsel Rosenfeld, but we'll just take the formality off. Shelly and Shadi here. Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. And uh, let's just start by getting to know who you are, what you do, and what got you into law? Sure. Well, I'm first of all, glad to be here. And I'm thrilled at the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners um, about some important issues. So I actually started off as a non-lawyer professionally. I worked as a journalist because I was very intrigued at telling people's stories and uh, specifically in broadcasting because I felt that seeing or hearing someone 
uh, speak about something that matters to the community can be one of the most effective ways to understand news around us. So I went into journalism. However, I always had an interest in law as well, starting from when I studied my undergraduate studies at Berkeley, because I also felt that the law can be very solution oriented and help someone in a sense have the keys to unlock a lot of life challenges. So I was intrigued by both and then ultimately decided to, to go to law school because I felt that journalists have a really important role, but uh, they cannot intervene on someone's behalf. And I was intrigued by the intersection of law and journalism that perhaps I could use my communication skills as a journalist, but my expertise as a lawyer to help others understand their world. So eventually I got to the Cancer Legal Resource Center. I worked in uh, diff different capacities in the law, uh, but was really intrigued by uh, helping the cancer community and especially in, in this role, uh, because everything that we do is free. So the idea of when people think of lawyers, as you said, sometimes people want to stay away from them. One of those reasons is because uh, lawyers do charge a fee. So in this situation, uh, because what we do is free, it's a really great opportunity to help others and uh, and do the work, do the best of what I loved about journalism and the best of, of what I loved about the law. Yeah, I mean, if a lawyer speaks one word, it's like $500 per word. So you know, we, we understand that. But uh, no, in, in uh, all kidding aside, this is this is amazing. She Shelly, when you go into law school and after you finish law school, is the field of law now, you must be subspecialized? Like, you know, obviously we need about family law, patent law, corporate law, all of these things. Are you able to be a general lawyer or you must specialize? That's a really good question. Legal studies are somewhat general in nature and then students will oftentimes take classes of which they're interested, but also try to explore the waters of different specialties. But as opposed to medicine, there really is no residency. So in a sense, a law student graduates, they take the, the bar for their respective state or states that they want to be licensed and then they go out to practice. So. My perspective is as follows. I think a smart lawyer can transition to other types of law. I did that. I'm not saying I'm a smart lawyer, but I think a, a good lawyer is, is one that has those skills of, first of all, empathy, trying to uh, relate to the client or the person that they're helping, put themselves in their situation, uh, clear communication, which is whether speaking to a judge, communicating in writing, speaking to a jury, they can boil down kind of the big picture but then also explain the details and how they fit into that. And then um, un understanding how the law fits in. So I certainly think that there is an opportunity to, to move from one specialty to another. And um, I, I think that those skills can, can all be developed and translatable. So I, I certainly think that one does not completely need to silo off to one area, but of course, lawyers tend to go down a path, but I, I actually did move from one to the other based on just an interest. And I think that's, one should always follow their passion. Um, and Absolutely. so- that those so, skills can definitely translate. Like what, what, but what got you to, um, is it something that you've always wanted to do that you want to focus on patients and patient rights um, since you were doing journalism or did this evolve? Because you said you did different kinds. Um, what was, was there something that led you decide this is what my passion is? This is what I really want to do. That's a great question because in undergrad, the closest that I got to science was political science. So I really did not have a scientific background, although 
I was intrigued by health issues, especially as a journalist, because that is one area where someone could be uh, the founder of Apple or the, you know, a Supreme Court justice, and they have many different resources as well as just access to information, yet they are still affected by cancer. So that's, in a sense, um, just an, an area that I was very intrigued by. But uh, as a lawyer, it is not always easy to find those jobs because I, I do not have that scientific background. So I followed other interests. And then when I saw the position open at the Cancer Legal Resource Center, I thought, wow, it combines an area of, of health-related issues that I feel is, is so crucial. Um, oncology, it can really be something that changes someone's life in, in, in many health-related, but also non-health related ways, kind of the non-medical side effect. So here is an area where I really think that uh, the skills that I had of, of really uh, wanting to, the curiosity of a journalist and wanting to understand someone's situation, as well as clearly communicating what might be some options for them. I think those skills I can bring and the passion for helping others, especially in the cancer community, uh, which I think hopefully is poised for some some really important scientific discoveries for, for treatments, but is also there is still so much to do. And so managing side effects um, on the healthcare area it might be their doctor's uh, domain, but the side effects uh, related to whether it's job, health insurance. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, there's you know. physical side effects, but there's other elements. And frankly, the non-physical side effects could impact quality of life and everything else. And, and we'll go into that in a little bit, but... Uh, this is fascinating to me that you know you you know you followed your passion and you found this uh, this opportunity, but what you know cancer legal resource center is did you know about this entity before or you just kind of like you know you just found a job posting and you said I'm going to apply for this or like what's the history of cancer legal resource center? Do you, can you give us just a little bit about what that what that is? Sure. I actually knew about the Cancer Legal Resource Center while in law school. UC Hastings College of the Law, uh, which has now changed its name, but at the time it was UC Hastings uh, College of the Law, uh, they had an opportunity to earn a pro bono distinction if someone volunteered. So I was looking for volunteer opportunities, came across the Cancer Legal Resource Center and all actually volunteered while I was in law school uh, for a brief period and was really intrigued. But in terms of the history of the Cancer Legal Resource Center, it was established in 1997. Uh, so it's been a, around now for, for decades um, and is part of the 501c3 nonprofit Disability Rights Legal Center, which does impact litigation in terms of disability rights. But the reason that the CLRC, which is short for Cancer Legal Resource Center, is a part of that organization is because uh, numerous rights of those with cancer, especially in employment, are disability-based. So basically grounded in the American with Disabilities Act, but it is separate. It is, we don't, we don't bring lawsuits. We inform people of their rights uh, because just to the point that we talked about earlier, maybe someone with cancer doesn't need to work with a lawyer. They just need to know what their legal rights are and they can right. hopefully be able to handle that on their own or with the help of, uh, you know, family member or a friend. It still takes a lot of tenacity and persistence um, I wish it were easier to sometimes um, obtain various legal rights, but the point is that they might not need to pay a lawyer or to work with one. There might be situations where that makes sense, but in, in many cases, they just need to know, okay, you have rights here, and here's a good way to think about it. So I, yeah. I think that, that's, you know, obviously having an understanding of the law, I can help someone sure. and do the research for them, but 
they don't need to be represented by a lawyer. So that's kind of how it fits in with the overall organization. The overall organization has been around for longer, but uh, it was founded essentially on the principle that the cancer community has different needs, maybe than quote the larger disability community is more. Um, and and cancer itself is so many different types of cancers and different stages, of course. So even that includes so many different people in in such a variety of different circumstances. But still, you know, focusing on the cancer community and those specific needs. Right. That that yeah. And and then you're obviously based in California. Uh, but um, do you have folks that seek you out from outside of the state or um, or do you have other offices in different uh, parts of the country? So while our main office is in Los Angeles, we help nationwide. We really do get callers from everywhere. We're talking about the South, the East Coast. I mean, states that you might not normally think about as much. We do get callers and, and we do have many low income callers because what we do is free, so it certainly opens up the doors for to help many other people. So yes, everything that we do is uh, our telephone. But how, how do you get paid? I mean, at some point you need to get paid, right? I mean, you can't. You know, I mean, I understand you don't charge patients, but right. I mean, somebody has to. I mean, you you need to make a living. So how do you get paid, and the staff at the CLRC get paid? So uh, the main, some of the main areas are grants. So for example, if there is, um, a, you know, a pharmaceutical company that believes in patient support, they don't tell us what to do. For example, if they give us support for our webinars, they are not asking me, what did you put in those webinars? Or can right. we see them? Not at all. I'm the one that makes the webinar. So I can tell you that for sure. They just want to support and to, for people to know that they, they do care. So that is one way. Um, also in California, for example, um, lawyers who just lawyers who are licensed by the state bar that put their clients' money right in bank accounts, those bank accounts accrue interest. So that interest in California goes to uh, pro bono organizations such as the Cancer Legal Resource Center. So that's another way um, as well. I I'm not as much into kind of knowing exactly all the the places where we might get funding, but that's that's a huge, you know, those are some huge sources. And then just, you know, overall other grants uh, to support the organization. Maybe philanthropy, I would presume some yeah. donors or things like that. Right. So, I want to just get a little bit into detail. I mean, this is very helpful just to get a, a you know, a baseline. But, you know, I have a lot of listeners who are patients and caregivers and they're interested a little bit, obviously, I'll, I'll put a link to your um, center so they know how to reach, but I really am interested in a few important questions. Um, um, and as somebody who's taken care of patients for many, many years and seen hundreds of patients, I, I have firsthand experience into some of the pain points that actually patients have. The, the first thing that oftentimes patients may struggle with is, uh, do they tell their employer about the disease that they have because they obviously get afraid that they may let go they may not be told that they are being let go because of the cancer they say there's a we're cutting reduction in force we're going to let 20 people leave and you just happen to be one of those 20. as somebody get diagnosed with cancer how do they handle their employer relationship um, and what they tell and what they don't tell uh, do you advise them to tell, not to tell, tell everything, not to tell everything? How do you navigate that? Sure. That is a, a key important question. And employment related issues are one of the most common legal issues that people contact us about. So first of all, the question to tell or not to tell. 
That is such a personal decision. If you tell me that a patient wants to tell their employer, I say, okay. If, they, if you tell me a patient does not want to tell their employer, I say, okay. And the reason is, is because of exactly what you described. So there are certainly, you know, reasons why somebody would want to and why they wouldn't, but I completely respect either decision. Once someone tells their employer, they can't unring that bell, right? I mean, they hope that their employer follows the law that is in the best interest of the employer and the employee for the employer to follow the law. But sometimes, and we, you know, the, the people that call us aren't the people without challenges, they're the people with challenges. We do get people that are saying that they told their boss and unfortunately uh, they were passed up for a promotion or they are no longer working at their job. We take people at their word when they, when they call us, we don't ask for them to send any documentation of what they're sharing, we just wanna help. So uh, that is something that unfortunately has occurred to people that have contacted us. Let's think about some considerations though that can hopefully help someone to make the decision that is best for them. So first of all, just to briefly understand what law could apply, there's the American with Disabilities Act or ADA. It's a federal law, so that applies nationwide. States may give more protections, but let's just stick with the federal law now because you have a wide audience. It makes it illegal for private employers with 15 or more employees to discriminate against job applicants, not just people that are working there, but job applicants or employees with disabilities. And cancer can be considered a disability. And basically, um, it prohibits employers from essentially firing someone because of their disability or, for example, you know, cancer constitutes disability because of their cancer or, treat, you know, effects from treatment related to cancer. So, first of all, the reason that someone would tell their employer is because they are seeking a reasonable accommodation. So, a reasonable accommodation you know, that can be something, depends on the person, right? But it and depends on their job, but it can be something like even, you know, changes to a physical environment, like moving file drawers to a more accessible location or allowing someone to work remotely for a limited amount of time. So for example, that would be a reason. Someone can't ask for a reasonable accommodation without sharing some information with their employer. They can't just um, ask for that, you know, without any context. So if someone feels that they, first of all, do not need any support right now, they, you know, they're, they're going through treatment, uh, they're not feeling ideally, but maybe they're managing everything well, they may decide that that's not right, the right time to, to share any information. However, we do suggest that someone does, you know, if they're going to share that information or some information with their employer, that they do so before work performance has been affected. If someone is falling asleep at their desk due to fatigue or is, for example, needing to take more frequent breaks uh, due to treatment or they need to keep food at their desk and they're not normally permitted to do so, and these don't have to be massive changes when I say reasonable accommodations. But if they start doing these things and their boss sees that they're falling asleep at their desk, they could be fired because of performance, you know, performance issues, just like anybody else. So if they ask for a reasonable accommodation and, and talk to their employer, um, share, in, they may, you know, in certain circumstances need to provide some medical certification, then, you know, uh, then they're working with their employer and the employer maybe says, you know, we still can't have food at the desk, we're a lab, whatever the situation is, but anytime you need to leave your desk, 
uh, we'll make sure that our, you know, our kitchen can support you, you know, taking uh, that, that those food breaks. Oh, if you need to put your head down on your desk or if you need to go somewhere and rest, that, that's perfectly fine. If you need to change, you know, start your workday earlier because you need to leave for a doctor's appointment, we can work that out. These are just some examples. Again, there's no not we never know what might work out with that employer and what might get, work out for that employee the best. But the point is, is that um, someone, you know, cannot be fired according to the law because of a cancer uh, diagnosis, uh, as long as they're still able to, you know, to do the essential functions of their job. But, you know, in that case, then they would be speaking to their employer. The question is, what do they ultimately need to share with their employer? So in that situation, What's really helpful for the employer? The employer needs to know, okay, you know, they don't necessarily need to know the exact diagnosis because you know oncology, but the employer doesn't. They don't, what, what is the significance of knowing the diagnosis if they don't know actually what is a, the practical effects of, for the employee? So in some cases, an employee may potentially be able to go there to their internal medicine doctor. So the employer only sees that, they don't see oncology in the header, but they might be able to, work with an um, internal medicine doctor who looks at the oncologist information and says, okay, you know, there's a patient and they have, you know, such and such side effects uh, due to treatment and may be able to avoid more of the, the details that someone affected by cancer might be concerned about. So it's really, it can be a team effort. There are solutions out there. The employer doesn't necessarily uh, need to know all those details. And just one more thing is that the employer must keep those medical files separate from the personnel file. They can't just have it, you know, so that anyone can see it um, on their desk. That medical information has to be kept separate. So there are protections out there, uh, but it is important for someone to know that, you know, if they are treated differently, um, you know, by their employer based on their cancer diagnosis, uh, they should really look into what, you know, what, if anything, can be done uh, because it's it's a very difficult situation to be in. So uh, I think, I think so, some of the fear could be perception versus reality. So, for example, you know, you brought in a possibility of somebody passed on for a promotion. So I tell my employer about a cancer diagnosis, I request I need to take like two days off a week and I'll make them up for the weekend, whatever it is. And I get passed on for a promotion, but obviously the employer is not going to be stupid enough to say they passed me on because of my cancer diagnosis. They just, you know, they're going to promote somebody else. I may feel I deserve the promotion and my employer feels differently. And then the patient, uh, you know, feels that the employer passed them on, you know, obviously unfairly. And the and nobody really knows the intention. Uh, probably, do you get asked sometimes as a lawyer? I want to sue my employer because they did not really represent me. And and are you in the in in your capacity in your current role? Uh, is this just legal consulting and counseling, or do you actually um, willing to you know to to go into a litigation a lawsuit? Oh, so that's uh, also a fantastic question because sometimes people do feel that they are discriminated against, want to take it to the next step. They may decide to file a complaint with the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission and or also sue their employer. We at the Cancer Legal Resource Center, although uh, we're lawyers, we do not take anyone on as a client. I'm licensed in California, New York, D.C., but I'm not licensed in every state. So first of all, that would be impossible to represent folks. And also, um, we help a lot more people by not taking people on as clients. It's a lot of important work, but that's not really what we do. We don't take anyone on as clients. We just 
do research for that person based on national and state law and refer them to legal resources, for example, legal aids, other um, referral services. And if we have a lawyer that's volunteered with us to help, then we'll refer to that uh, lawyer who volunteers half an hour of their time. I don't specialize in employment or any one particular area because we get so many different types of calls. So we don't take someone on, but what we do do is provide that research and advise someone of their rights. So if they want to talk to an employment lawyer, they already know what, you know, what kinds of things that lawyer will what look for. What questions to ask, yeah. Yeah, and how to make that conversation count with that lawyer, because they know kind of, wow, here's the law and here's how my situation fits into it. You're, you bring up a point. Some situations are unfair, but they're not illegal. They're just unfair. Right. So that's, you know, a separate question. And sometimes really qualified people get passed up for a promotion just because the employer, you know, decides that someone else who's also a strong candidate has earned that role. So it might not be because it's really the person assesses their specific circumstances. If this employer has made certain statements or, you know, acted in certain ways, it's the all the context and all the big picture. But yet, you know, sometimes it's not always uh, discrimination. If it is, then talk. That's the point where they might want to speak to a lawyer uh, if they want to sue their employer. Are, are, are employees, you know, in the job, for example, um, are they able to, you know, so there are medical leaves in every employer's, uh, employee's contract, I'm pretty sure. And that varies. Could be four weeks, could be six weeks, could be eight weeks, I guess. Is there any flexibility in the law that if you have a cancer diagnosis, you are able to go and say, I, I need to have longer medical leave than what is in my contract or you live by the contract and you die by the contract. So a lot of places of employment for a full-time employee do have uh, sick days, but you're right. When someone is affected by cancer diagnosis, they may need to use up their sick days or they use them up quickly and then they need more days. So there are protections out there. There's something called the Family and Medical Leave Act or FMLA. And it allows certain employees to take up to 12 work weeks per year to take care of oneself or a certain family members. With this serious is paid or unpaid? Unpaid or paid? Unpaid. So unpaid. yeah, it's a huge downside because someone, of course, with cancer, it, cancer is expensive. I heard this uh, great quote that, you know, no one, no one makes money after the, you know, the, their diagnosis. It, 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 it takes up, you know, a financial hit, no matter what um, circumstances yeah, someone sure. is in. So uh, having a salary is important. I don't minimize that. But FMLA does allow someone to keep their job and their health insurance. And sometimes that health insurance can be worth, you know, a you know, the, the the amount of a salary even because healthcare costs are so high. So um, it does allow someone to keep their job and their health insurance. So, so you, you brought me to health insurance. I want to pivot yeah. to the health insurance because a lot of folks worry from a patient perspective that if I actually, because the health insurance company has the right to look at your medical records. Um, I mean, you know, the um, the life insurance company, I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I when I got a life insurance policy, they requested medical records, all of these things. From a health insurance, the medical insurance, as well as the life insurance, let's talk about health insurance first. Um, you know, if you are a patient, are they able when they have to renew your policy to increase your premium and deductible based on what you consumed the year before? And from a life insurance standpoint, you know, 
people get afraid that they will be denied a life insurance policy uh, because of their health issues. So they cannot actually buy a life insurance policy. And if they buy it, it's so expensive that it becomes cost prohibitive. Talk to us a little bit about the medical insurance, health insurance type of things, as well as the life insurance type of thing from a patient perspective and family perspective, if you can. Sure. I mean, this can be a whole separate podcast in itself. I know. Um, in terms That's of, why we try to fit everything in one podcast. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So I'll just touch upon it briefly um, and, and to say as follows, right? The Affordable Care Act did make, make some changes and someone, of course, cannot be um, denied health insurance coverage um, based on a pre-existing condition. In fact, before even, you know, um, uh, a woman in some cases was charged higher health insurance rates, uh, not even talking about cancer, but just because um, women tended to be considered to have higher health care costs due to pregnancy. So that has changed. Um, really, only someone's, um, you know, location, for example, can be taken into consideration. Certain cities have higher health care costs. But they costs. can increase the premium, right? I mean, I think the concern is, is not the denied. So, for example, they say, we are going to give you the insurance, but your deductible is $10,000 a year and your premium is like, you know, if you, I guess the, the question becomes is it's, you know, how much do we have as patients? Do we have the right? Say like, I mean, I got cancer. It wasn't really my fault. And now you're making my deductible and my monthly premium so high. I, it, you know, it didn't really help me. Like it's almost having insurance on paper. That's my concern. Right. Well, when someone, you know, is is if, if someone cannot buy health insurance um, and they're going through private exchanges, of course, it, you know, that will be more expensive. But that, you know, in terms of actual, you know, someone being punished by by cancer, we we have not, you know, gotten that call, ever, you know, certainly since um, the Affordable Care Act about someone based on their cancer being charged all of a sudden a different premium. Um, life insurance is is challenging um, after a cancer diagnosis. It's not impossible, but I completely empathize. Just to contrast that, um, the chance of securing a policy depends greatly on type, stage, and grade of the cancer, and even the treatment plan. So yes, there is a relationship between the rate someone will receive and the curability of, of cancer. Uh, applicants with a common and treatable form of breast or prostate cancer may be this is just by way of example, may be able to get a standard rating under ideal circumstances, but someone with, you know, a certain history um, or a later stage cancer may fall into, you know, a substandard or high substandard rating that, you know, that is very frustrating. I, yeah. I completely empathize with that. Sometimes this is the big picture. When someone hears information like this and they are frustrated, I say, first of all, it's important to know the landscape, what's out there. Um, I always say, you know, we don't recommend specific insurance companies or anything like that, but there are, I would say, someone to do their homework um, mm -hmm. as well. And then finally, if people want the law to change, you have to know what the law is in the first place. So, you know, hopefully one day that will be different, that that will not, you know, people will not be treated this this way in terms right. of life insurance. But let's, we first maybe can use um, health insurance more as a model and, and then, you know, hopefully with better treatments out there and more talking about cancer, it will be, I, I'm hoping, less stigmatized and less um, uh, of a challenge for people to get life insurance coverage at a more affordable rate. So genetic testing is another thing that from a patient perspective, they worry about. As And, and they worry about this just because, again, it affects life insurance policies as well as premiums. So genetic testing, you know, you're not a patient, let's say, you're, you don't have cancer, 
you are the relative of a patient who has cancer and the doctor of that patient recommended that family members undergo genetic testing to check if they have the gene that led to this cancer. So as a family member of that particular patient, you are in a conundrum right, right now. Because if you do the test and you are found to have that gene, you worry about the premiums and the deductibles of your health insurance. And again, you worry about the life insurance policy. And so from when it comes to genetic testings for diseases that are passed on from families to relatives, what does the law say and what are the rights of the uh, patients as well as the uh, relatives of the uh, patients who might be affected with cancer? So one one important issue is is exactly that. And certainly we want the law to encourage people to get genetic testing. It can actually hopefully save healthcare costs if someone's being monitored closely and obviously can be in the best interest of the patient to know um, what they might be able to screen for. So there's something called Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, abbreviated GINA, G-I-N-A. It prohibits health insurers and employers from discriminating on the basis of genetic information. So under GINA, genetic information is defined as an individual's family medical history as well as the results of a genetic test, either for their either for themselves or for a family member. And that includes genetic counseling, other genetic services, and participation in genetic research. That genetic information, it does not include information about individuals' current health status or diseases that they currently have. But for example, if a person has taken a, a BRCA genetic test to determine their risk for breast cancer, this is genetic information. So uh, just, to, just to keep that in mind, health insurance companies are prohibited from restricting enrollment or adjusting premiums, contribution amounts, or coverage terms based on a person's genetic information. So you know that's, I think, an important thing you know to keep in mind. Um, but so there, there are rights, like you know, if a patient feels you know, they should not not undergo genetic testing because of that fear. If they feel they are being discriminated against, they should seek legal counsel. Right. They should certainly uh, look into what options they have. Yes, because um, I, I think that's that's very important to to recognize that they cannot be discriminated against just because of that uh, genetic testing. And it, and it does make sense. Who would want to get testing if they know that that information could be right. used? I mean, but, but it's so, a fear that exists with patients, right? I mean, it's just, a, it's just a real thing that patients and families are afraid about. How about, I mean, do you get, do you get sometimes people who are uh, saying they have been denied a particular test or a procedure or a medication that their doctor feels might help? because the insurance company said, well, we're not going to pay for it. It is not on our formulary. It is not, um, we, there's not enough data. So, so uh, there are sometimes patients and families say, you know, our insurance company is not paying for a PET scan. They're not paying for a medication that my doctor prescribed. And I need that medication. I believe it's going to help me. My doctor believes it's going to help me. What do you advise me? How do you advise in this scenario where there's this disconnect? The insurance company doesn't want to pay for a test or a medication, and the patient and the doctor, they want to give that medication and the test. Right. So formulary list of approved medications. The person that comes up with that is not your oncologist. It's the insurance company. So that's a huge issue for patients. They have a treatment that their oncologist says they should be taking. They try to get that covered by their health insurance company, and it is denied. So on top of all that, 
then you know they're having to consider what are my options they don't have a lot of time uh to wait so the cancel legal resource center we always say appeal even if it feels like you already have to start some other treatment in the meantime i would always suggest to appeal but the key thing and we always say this in our presentations and we actually have um a webinar uh tomorrow but we you know depending on when someone's listening to this i'll just i'll just say we have a webinar series called know your rights um but the point is is that we always say open your mail, because if you are denied that appeal, it is really important. Or if you're rather denied even that coverage, that denial letter that people just want to throw away, if you keep reading, it says the deadline to which to appeal. And it is really important because you could have the best case, but if you don't appeal in time, then you're missing the deadline. So keep reading, even though you don't want to, and look at that deadline. I would always say appeal what there's no downside except for using some of your time and of course the frustration and your doctor can be an ally in that appeal and say why it is medically necessary for you to receive that medication and then if that appeal is still denied keep reading on because there'll be other mechanisms you may be able to once you're you've exhausted all the internal appeals there are also external appeals so it is definitely worth fighting for no um, I, think, I, I agree with you i think yeah. the biggest issue with cancer patients obviously is time right yeah. i mean i think a lot of times these these processes take a long time and as you articulated shelly many patients don't have the luxury of uh, and the bandwidth of dealing with uh, with time, and I think that is uh, that is that is a, a big issue. Do you help uh, in terms of financial uh, aspects? Like you know, I'll, I'll share a story with you that I was um, uh, one time a patient of mine uh, that had a uh, um, you know stage four cancer was asking me about what do I do with my four hundred one k. I didn't really know know what to say because I wasn't really sure. I, I couldn't provide financial advice. He's like, do I just take the money and, and do whatever I want with them? Like, so, so, so is this part of the questions that sometimes you get asked? Is this a resource that you provide for patients? Well, certainly people do call with financial concerns. It's commonly referred to as financial toxicity. Just to be clear, we don't provide any financial assistance ourselves um, in terms of funding. However, you know, we will provide information about different um, organizations that may be helpful. A lot of times the financial questions come up with um, if, if someone has concerns about medical billing errors, it comes up in different ways. But in terms of tapping into a 401k in those situations, I would certainly, you know, there are certain reasons why someone um, is allowed to certainly tap into their 401k in terms of medical necessity of that, of those withdrawals. So in that case, I would certainly say that someone should speak to a financial advisor um, and, and evaluate their situation uh, in terms of whether that makes sense for them. But um, so we don't necessarily get that specific type of question in which to assist, but uh, we do get a lot of financial questions. And a lot of times being able to keep someone's job, uh, finding out about, you know, income replacement with you know, social security if they can't work for a really long time uh, or just maintaining their health insurance are some ways, key initial yeah. solutions to consider. Yeah. So I've asked you a lot of questions in terms of what I think these are important for patients. Any other questions you see very commonly asked by the folks that call you and seek your counsel and seek your opinion that I may have forgotten or did not really touch upon? Well, we'd certainly get questions um, in terms of uh, social security disability, if someone needs to take a longer time off of the job, some people face housing concerns, um, or some people want to consider advanced Yeah, planning. the bills, right? I mean, you yeah. know, do they can they actually call, uh, you know, the electric uh, company and the 
heating company and say, hey, you know, I, uh, you know, do they have any rights to appeal for these companies? Say, can you defer my payments for six months without cutting my electricity or heat? Well, you know, I, I certainly would recommend always trying that. There may not be necessarily any any specific rights, but I will say that, um, you know, coming up with a payment plan with a variety of different, um, you know, service providers, that might be something, especially nowadays and since the pandemic, when many yeah. people have been affected uh, by financial challenges, is worth a try. Um, and so hopefully they'll be able to, to work something out. But, you know, there's not always necessarily um, specific you know, rights, rights out there. But, um, and then I'll say, you know, people do contact us about um, questions about advanced planning, estate planning. And um, I just want to say the following, which is, um, I think sometimes it's a difficult conversation, especially for a doctor, because if somebody's coming to their oncologist, and the oncologist says, well, you know, you might want to think about creating a whale, that can really, really oh, yeah be difficult. And all I have to say is, unfortunately, no one lives forever. I wish it was the case, but unfortunately, no one lives forever. So you're such a um, buzzkill. I wanted to live. Forever, that's <laughs> I don't need to break that on a medical podcast. But but I just want to say one thing, if someone has been confronted with that conversation is just that for them to keep in mind, yes, no one lives forever. And there is a way to have their wishes live beyond their life, whatever their lifespan is, whatever their health situation is. So at least to consider that in order to, to protect, you know, what, what they have or what they care about, even if they don't have that much, to be able to spell it out can be actually a very helpful thing for anyone that cares about them and for them to, to express their wishes um, in the future. I really appreciate your time, Shelley. You've given us a lot of time, and I know that we had, you know, I think I've exceeded my ex exceeded my welcome because I know you didn't have a lot of time today. But uh, I know that a lot of my listeners uh, would really appreciate the time uh, that you provided, and uh, uh, hopefully they will uh, check the um, you know Legal Resource Center. Um, any final comments before uh, I let you go? And I'm very thankful for your time. Just that I, I hope someone checks out um, the Cancer Legal Resource Center website. We have uh, webinars that I've led as well as upcoming webinars, and then they can fill out an intake for free. We will help for free. Um, and if someone's a lawyer, they can look into ways to volunteer with us um, on very minimal commitment uh, to help someone affected by cancer. I would volunteer. I'm not a lawyer, but I would volunteer. <laughs> well, Shelley Rosenfeld on Healthcare Unfiltered from the Cancer Legal Resource Center. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Glad to be here. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening and thank you for visiting with us on Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let me know what you think by direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan and by, of course, uh, the, emailing me at chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. I appreciate your input, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate you spreading the word to your friends and colleagues. You can watch, by the way, all of my podcast episodes on my YouTube channel. Don't forget to hit the subscribe and the like button and share with your friends and colleagues. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from a Lebanese poet and writer, Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.